0: Kids, I've just dropped you off at school and I've pressed record before I drove off and my phone is sitting in the console and I'm speaking as I drive along. So, essentially, even after I drop you off, I'm still talking to you. This podcasting thing is so easy. It's amazing, actually. And I need to drive to Box Hill now for work and... So there's half an hour, so theoretically, I could make another episode on Ethiopia. Um, And then later today, I'm coming back from Box Hill, so there's another episode. I doubt that I'll do that every time I... There'll be, end up, there's 365 days in the year, I'd be up to episode number something like 600 by, after 12 months, which, there must be something wrong with that. There's other podcasters out there, all the great ones, Mike Duncan. There's a guy called Dan Carlin. I was listening to listening to. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, there's another guy, Stephen West. I liked him. Uh, now, th- but these guys, uh, they, you know, it's weeks and months, maybe, or you know, at least weeks, and sometimes months between their podcasts, because they're in between their researching reading books and all that sort of thing, and then distilling all of that into a podcast that is going to be a high enough quality for posterity, something special, and that's what makes them famous. Uh, I'll never be famous like that, because I'm not willing to do all that. I'm just here for a chat, and I'm not even here for an audience these other guys, they're always, you know, this station is, uh, this podcast is sponsored by audio. Uh, and then they go, oh, such and such pillows. Uh, there's uh, mattresses. You know, there A lot of them, there's some mattress company in America that they all seem to plug. So I'm not like that. Uh, I have no interest in I have no interest in whether anyone even likes my podcasts. I'm not tailoring the podcasts to my audience, obviously. You know, otherwise I'd be doing some nice things, the sorts of things that they do. Uh, Mike Duncan always made sure that his podcasts were nice and tight and in the narrative style and twenty minutes in duration each to make them really appealing, and it worked. But I have no interest in doing that. I don't care if I have an audience. I'm really only doing these podcasts for my kids and anyone else who wants to hear my voice drone on. Uh, And, you know, like that Stephen West, he was a really nice guy, but I could tell he was desperate for people to sponsor his show and all that sort of thing. I don't need to do all that. Uh, I am here just for a chat. And it's really a continuation of the sort of chat, kids, uh, because just for the moment I'll say it's for you, Lauren, uh, Helena and Alex, Uh, but it's also for my goddaughter's kids as well. This particular podcast, which is on Ethiopia, is for my kids, Um, and I'll do other podcasts, I'm sure. Uh, There's other things I really like too. I love Rome and all that sort of thing, so I'll probably do a podcast on Rome that has just as many facts as this uh, podcast on Ethiopia has, meaning not many, but that gets me thinking. Would I like my children to have a teacher, a history teacher, who was like me? Probably not. However, there are some good things about the way I teach my children history, because they do have a history teacher like me, because I'm their history teacher like me. Uh, I chat to them, but in in the way I'm chatting to you right now, kids. Uh, but the history teachers, when I think about the history teachers I had at school, they, I had, in retrospect, I had a liberal arts education through a Catholic system. I didn't know that at the time, but I found out what a liberal arts education is since then, and that education was rather like the education that Aristotle might give you back in the back in the old days, uh, where everything is highly structured, and um, the teachers have to know they make sure they have everything right and fill your head with knowledge, and knowledge will set you free, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then uh, that was when I was. Educated these days, the the way teachers teach has changed. I think the way they teach now is to a curriculum, a very heavily. Now obviously, we had a curriculum too, but it's heavily, you know, uh, training the kids to a curriculum uh, to, to a certain extent uh, to to make sure that the teachers tick all the boxes. And no doubt, there is teachers that want to get the kids excited about history. Uh, But with me, with this podcast, uh, what am I up to now? Eight minutes. Uh, And I haven't even started talking about what I'm going to talk about in this episode. Have you got all day? You need to have all day with me. Anyway, so um, with me, I don't bother too much with getting all the facts right. As you've seen. But I'm here really just to get you excited, kids, about a subject like Ethiopia or anything else. And as I said in the very first episode, even if, you know, I've probably sprinkled the first five episodes or however many I've done with a hell of a lot of facts in the end. If you listen to all five podcasts that I've made on Ethiopia so far, you'll get more history of Ethiopia than you'll get from all the other podcasts on history that exist in the world put together. You'll know more about Ethiopia right there, even though I haven't got my facts in order. Because I'm the only person bothering to talk about the history of Ethiopia. Uh, I have seen a few other little things on Ethiopia on the podcasts, uh, in the first episode, I said there are there are no podcasts on the history of Ethiopia, and there's five thousand on Rome, and you know three thousand on Greece, and you know, five hundred on Australia. I didn't check whether that was the case because I'm not here to be factual. Um, and as it turns out, I think there's only maybe twenty on Rome, uh, or ten, um, and you know maybe five good ones on Greece, and I've only seen one really good one on Australia, which I listened to right through, one that was produced by La Trobe University. That was really good, that one. Uh, but if you listen to my podcasts on Ethiopia so far, even this, though you've learned nothing in this episode, which is now probably up to 10 minutes, my idea, kids, is just to get you excited about the subject. So let's say I even get a lot of things wrong. Who cares? If, after listening to these podcasts and listening to me chat to you about stuff on the way to school in the car each morning, and uh, after school you don't like to listen about that stuff so much, uh, you just want to get home. If, If I'm getting you excited about the subject... You know, you can become professors later and find out what all the facts are. It's not, you don't need a history teacher to fill your head with facts. You need a history teacher just to get you excited about a subject and so that you're teaching yourself. See, this is the difference. History teachers, historically, uh, tend to maybe see their job as making sure they have taught all the kids, all the skills they need to properly investigate history. And then on top of that, fill their head with as much knowledge on history as they can. Whereas I'm taking the the approach of, I'll just get you excited about it. And I'll tell you all the facts I happen to know. Uh, some 80% of which might be right and 20% of which may be wrong. And probably the facts that you'll find most enjoyable will be the 20% I got wrong because therein lies the light bulbs going off because you can go off and study the thing yourself. If, you know, let's say I got you excited about Ethiopia with this set of podcasts. You could go off and... uh, study that thing, and I'm going to talk about lalabella in this episode, uh, so I'll probably say, oh, listen, you know, lalabella about 1,000 AD, you know, and you'll probably go onto your little Wikipedia or something, even though you're not allowed to use that at school, and you'll say, oh, no, it wasn't Dad. it was, you know, it was 1,100 AD, you know, oh, how exciting, you know, I'm really wrapped I, I just can't believe that, that's so, who cares? I couldn't care less whether it was 1,000 or 1,100. Uh, okay, but you may care. But there's other things, you know, that I've spoken about already uh, that, you know, you, you'll you like to um, investigate on your own. Maybe, maybe not with Ethiopia, you know. You might not care about Ethiopia even after this podcast, kids. Uh, my goddaughter's kids will because they're half Ethiopian, Uh, my kids, maybe not, maybe they'll wait for the, the, uh, podcast that I will make one day on Ireland, because, you know, they're of Irish extraction, or the one on England that I might do, because they're of English extraction, or the one on Greece that I might do, because they're of Greek extraction, oh, and Memo, goddaughter, uh, Cassie, I don't mind saying your name, uh, I'll do one on the Huns one day, um, that'll be really exciting, because I, Nobody knows anything about the Huns, especially when they were back in the steppes, back in the hills, uh, and I think that's a perfect kind of podcast for me, to write a podcast on something and speak for hours and hours and hours on something that nobody knows about. Yeah, that's the way to do it. All right, that'll do it for an introduction to this. <laughs> Stay tuned, I'm just getting a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey? I've just discovered how. Uh-huh, okay. yeah. uh, but something uh, new for you. Hey? you something new. Something new, it's a new toy for me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm doing it on Ethiopia. Ethiopia? Yeah. <laughs> That's alright, doesn't matter what you do it on. All right. all right. Yeah. So one. I need your coffee and... oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> nobody, you're on the, you're on the podcast, but nobody knows who you are, so okay. it doesn't know. Really coffee comes from Ethiopia. It's a short hop across to Italy. That's all I've got to say about that. See, I do end up covering everything, eventually. On to Lullabella. Let's go. Lullabella is a complex of churches. Imagine a village green in an English village with all the different churches around, Uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, maybe a Catholic one. Uh, Now, except Lullabella is a complex of churches with a difference. It's been carved into rock. Now, I'm trying to get my head around that. I've never been there, obviously. Not obviously. I never... But, all right, here's how I'm going to imagine Lalabella Uluru, you know Uluru, even if you're from overseas. Uh, Ayers Rock, it used to be called. Uluru is the world's biggest rock. Well, the biggest rock. That's sticking out of the ground anyway. I'm sure there are bigger rocks sitting under the surface in Ethiopia, for example. Perhaps. Everywhere, actually. But Uluru, that's the indigenous name for what used to be called Ayers Rock. I was at the handover of Ayers Rock back to the indigenous mob uh, that... Uh, you know who, whose lands in that area are their traditional lands. Uh, I was right next to Sir uh, the Governor Sir Ninian Stephen at the time. I was about early twenties, and I was hitchhiking around Australia at the time. I don't mind digressing a little bit, but um, and I was in Cairns and staying in a youth hostel, and I saw on a notice board a notice board in the youth hostel there was no internet in those days and all that sort of thing, that the handover of Ayers Rock was just about to start. So I jumped on a bus across two, uh three ways in the middle of, a, you know, the Northern Territory, and then down to uh, Alice Springs and got there. I was trying to hitchhike around Australia, but I had to get there in a hurry, so I grabbed a bus. And... Uh, got down to Alice Springs and found out I had a little bit of time to spare. Uh, oh, this podcast is about more than Ethiopia. I'll sprinkle it with other things at the same time. And um, I met an older woman there. I was only in my early 20s then. And she was driving out to Hermansburg, which is an... an now, I found out later it's an old Lutheran settlement. You know, early days when... Um, we were trying to be very helpful to the indigenous people. And uh, we drove out there, um, had a look at Hermansburg and came back to Alice Springs because I, I had got there too quick. You know, the the handover of Ayers Rock was still a couple of days away. And uh, when we got to Hermansburg, it was absolutely deserted, nobody there. Uh, but, you know, there's a big white cross in the middle of the place. Um, and then we came back um, uh, to Alice Springs, and then, you know, one thing or another, I, I I can't remember how I got to Ayers Rock. I probably took another bus. I don't know. And I, if I thought hard, I could remember, you know, it's been 30 years now, or, ago. Uh, I got to a little uh, I got to a little roadhouse halfway along the road from the main Stuart Highway across to Ayers Rock and the owner of the roadhouse had exactly the same name as me, uh, which was a coincidence. Same first name, same middle name, same last name. I'm doing these podcasts under a pseudonym, uh, an alias called Danny. Uh, But I'll give you a clue as to my real name. Uh, this guy has ended up the mayor of Alice Springs, uh, well, at least he was up to a couple of years ago, uh, and then I got across to Uluru, and we we uh, and then the handover started. All right, Uluru is a big bloody rock, you know. Now I already knew it was big before I got there. But when I got there, I was still amazed. That's big. I said, you know, you have to go there just to get a sense of how big it is. And I get the feeling that you have to go to Lullabella to feel and see how amazing that is too. All right. Now, let's just pursue this Uluru digression a little bit in a Lullabella sense. Imagine, yeah, I'm really keen on Rome. I'm really keen on, you know, our Western roots. That's me. Greece and Rome. I really like all that stuff. Uh, Now, imagine here in Australia that for one reason or another, we become isolated from Europe. And I mean we Westerners in Australia. Uh, and we know that we can't go back there. Now, I don't go to Europe. I've hardly ever travelled, you know. I've got kids. I haven't got time to do that. Uh, but imagine if I now knew that for the next thousand years, I'll, none of us will ever be able to go back to Europe. Well, I might... Um, be devastated by that, you know. Even if I don't actually go to Europe very often, at least I know I can go there. And I could go and see the Parthenon and I could go and see the Forum in Rome um, if I wanted to. Uh, but, I, but imagine if I knew that I couldn't. And imagine if I felt a lot more strong about, you know, Greece and Rome and all that stuff than I actually do, because I'm not that, you know. I'm not actually, wouldn't be that devastated myself. I'd just keep cruising along doing podcasts. But imagine that I was in a very spiritual, a deep cult- deeply cultural and spiritual way devastated, that I would never see, never be able to see the Parthenon. Right. I might... Um, Decide to recreate those places here and create a new Parthenon, a new Rome. I might create a new forum. But as a symbol or a sign of my deep, deep spiritual connection, I might want to do it as a massive sacrifice because I want my new imitation Rome to be as profound as the old one, so I have to do something special. You know, I'm not going to make a scale model uh, out, of car, out of balsa wood. Uh, so I might say to myself, no, I want this to be just, I want it to be every bit as spiritual going to this new Parthenon, let's say, as it might have been for me to make a pilgrimage there if I had access to that place, I might go to the centre of Australia with 40,000 like minded devotees and I might say to them, let's carve the Parthenon into Uluru. Protests from the indigenous mobs in the middle of Australia aside, that's something one can imagine. Okay. Something like this happened to Ethiopia as far as I can tell. They used to make pilgrimages pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And, you know, their spiritual... Their spiritual heritage, lay back in Jerusalem. They are one of the 12 tribes of Judah in their minds and probably actually, possibly actually. uh, I have to get back to this 12 tribes business because apparently there were two sets of 12 tribes, two sets of 12 brothers. uh, And, you know, one of them roughly gives rise to the Christian world and one roughly gives rise to the um, the Muslim world, that is probably far too trivial the way I put that. But, you know, there were two two people, I think Abraham was one, uh, but anyway, uh, two, 12, two tribes of 12 brothers each, come on, what's the chances, you know, uh, uh, what's the odds on... 12 boys in a row, twice. I think they might have even been related cousins, you know. All right, so imagine my cousin and I uh, both get married and we have 12 boys in a row each. Now, I I used to do statistics. Uh, I could calculate the odds on that. It's pretty low. But let's just say that there were 12 tribes of Judah and that... The Ethiopians are one of those tribes. All right. The long and short of that is that the Ethiopians, their very identity is rooted back in Jerusalem. Now, with the rise of Islam, and not necessarily because of Islam specifically, but at the time of the rise of Islam, which happened... You know, starting around about 800 AD, was it? 900 and then 1000 and 1100. But in that whole period, the lands between to the north of Ethiopia became too dangerous to pass through and to trade through and so on. Effectively, as far as I can tell, Ethiopia was cut off from the world above it was cut off from rome it was cut off from greece you know i've read things where back in very ancient times uh, you know delegations from ethiopia used to meet delegate used to meet the greeks up on one of the islands of greece you know i don't know which one samos or whatever you know, So there was a connection back then and that whole world, they knew the, Parth- the Parthenon and all that sort of stuff and they definitely knew, knew Jerusalem. And emperors used to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Now, one way or another, the Ethiopians, a Christian nation, at the time of the rise of Islam, got cut off from Jerusalem and the rest of the Western world. Now, I kind of feel that... Ethiopia was part of the Mediterranean world, was to the south of the Mediterranean world at that time, Uh, and from then on, it was absolutely isolated, and to an extreme extent. Uh, I, I read about some Scottish guy that went to Ethiopia in, maybe it was the 1700s, or the 1800s, and no European had been to Ethiopia in the previous, maybe 150 years or 200 years. And, you know, prior to that, had been the, been some Christians from Portugal who had made the trek to the mysterious place of Ethiopia. It was nowhere near as mysterious as that way, way, way back. All right, so Ethiopia is cut off from the Mediterranean world. And I think that's where we start to imagine that Ethiopia is at the north of Africa rather than at the south of the the Mediterranean world. I think that's where that sort of thinking starts, Uh, but that's just my, my read of the situation. I I note with interest that a new dam that Ethiopia is building or has started and for political reasons might um the construction might be halted for the time being I don't know uh but I notice they call it the Renaissance dam and I, it makes me think are they thinking you know like the west had a renaissance in which we brought back the ancient thinking and I'm wondering whether in their minds the Ethiopians, in naming that Renaissance Dam, are thinking, we remember a time when we were connected into the Mediterranean world. And this dam is where, you know, our trade routes and cultural links are opening up again now. Uh, the, The badlands to the north can be got around now with modern... Ways of communicating with the rest of the world, uh, I can imagine, might say an Ethiopian, that we are having a renaissance and we're coming back to the West with all our connections to the West. All right. So I think Ethiopia has done this with Lalabella. I think, just like the way I carved the Parthenon into Uluru, Something that could be done if you really got chipping and you had 40,000 people at your disposal. I actually think that would look amazing. Imagine if you did it perfectly, you know, Michelangelo style and uh, just carved the path and on into Uluru. It would be a huge statement, um, you know, and what... Uh, how shall I call it, progressives in this day and age. I'm, I, I, Whether I'm a progressive or a conservative or whatever is hidden from me even, you know. You can't pin anything on me. You can't tell, I, I'm i sure. Only because I can't tell. You can't tell whether I'm a progressive or a, a liberal or a conservative or anything or a socialist. I could be anything as far as you're concerned. Uh, right, now... But on one level, if we really wanted to smash the indigenous people culturally, we would carve the Parthenon into Uluru. All right. Now, the Ethiopians—they want to car—they—they they had this this idea. Let's make it a supreme sacrifice. So this will be a place of deep spirituality, of you know, infin- just as infinitely inspiring as the real Jerusalem. How can we make this place that deeply spiritual? And the obvious answer is let's not build our replica Jerusalem on top of the ground. Let's dig down into the ground and carve it into solid rock. That will hurt. Now, that's what they did. All right. A, ch- a set of churches essentially a village full-scale churches carved into rock that's pretty amazing now my goddaughter went there my goddaughter's been everywhere i go nowhere my goddaughter goes everywhere that's how fair life is uh she went there and she said yes you go there and you know tears came to her eyes she felt the spirituality and what do I think that spiritual, that feeling of spirituality might be? I think that might derive from the sheer effort, the sheer sacrifice, the sheer faith of the people who carved it. That amount of effort to carve, that amount of devotion to carve churches into rock, gives the place spirituality because that's the sacrifice of the people and i don't even care whether technically jesus even ever existed and whether god's up there with you know a toga on and he's a male so you know he's got a toolbox under the toga you know i don't care about all that stuff a lot of people get tied up with that oh you know the seven days the earth couldn't have been made in seven days that's stupid yeah who cares the spirituality of this place is tied up in the fact that the people carving the place had faith that all that stuff is true. It doesn't matter if it's technically true. You know, you could get into philosophy with this Descartes. I say Descartes. I don't, you know, some people, <laughs> I meet people and they say, oh, you must say Wagner and you must say Bach, you know, and even, and you must say, you know, I'm an and supporter you know football and there's a huge debate recently on social media whether you know one of our guns Orazio Fantasia we call him oh that you know he should be called Fantasia not Fantasia because Fantasia is the proper Italian pronunciation it's an absolute outrage everyone's calling him Fantasia and then one of our commentators Brian Taylor said I'm bloody calling him Fantasia you know Fantasia you know that sounds dumb to me uh, I'm Australian, so I'm calling him Fantasia. Um, and then, you know, someone else writes onto the news. I don't follow social media. I'm not on social media, but the, the social media sort of thinking comes through to the news these days, and that's becoming a bit like social media too. I might have to ditch that as well. But anyway, someone comes onto uh, the, my news feeds and says, have we stooped, you know, How have we come to this? That people can't respect any other cultures. Oh, my goodness. So that, you know, the guy wants to be called Fantasia and Brian Taylor insists on calling him Fantasia, you know? This is racist, it's an outrage, you know? And, yeah, and yet here am I going, uh uh-oh, glad I'm not on social media because I say Bach, you know, and I say Wagner and, um, uh, and, you know, they'd be all over me and I am i don't even care, you know, uh, but I, I'm not going to go around saying Bach, you know, Bach, you know, I, bark, you know? I, I listen to Bach. Uh, I'm going to say I listen to Bach. Hmm. Um, um, interesting footnote to that. Someone stopped Horatio Fantasia, who I love. Uh, oh, he, he's fantastic. He's uh, fantastic. And they stopped him in the airport after this whole debate and all the, the heat of the online shouting at each other. And someone stopped him in the airport a couple of days later, a reporter, and said, Horatio, uh, if someone were to stop you in the airport and ask you what your name is, what would you say? How would you pronounce your name? And he said, oh, I call myself Horatio Fantasia. Absolutely hilarious, uh, Fantasia. He can snap a goal from anywhere. All right, so where was I? Lalabella, of course. Now, Lala Um, okay, carved into rocks. And the person who ordered it was the emperor Lalabella. So it becomes eponymous, is that the word? Uh, uh, Lalabella is named after the Emperor Lalabella these days. I doubt that he called it Lalabella, I don't know. Uh, And yes, it has been, it is the New Jerusalem and a New Jerusalem for Ethiopia. And my daughter said, yes, it's got a a real feeling of deep spirituality when you go there. And it's one of the uh, temples in or the churches looks to me a little bit like the Parthenon, actually. Uh, that's interesting because Ethiopia did have memories of having links to Greece, too, you know. So maybe they were missing the Parthenon as well and didn't want to, you know. Because if you forget all that stuff, uh, your connections to your world which in ethiopia's case i think is the mediterranean world including jerusalem primarily but you know the whole mediterranean world i think they shared gods with them in the whole bit now what are your other options once you get isolated from your world well you could not you you know you could decide to not carve you know, something like lalabella into the rocks but You kind of know that you're going to slip away from all of that. You're going to forget all that. (laughs) I was a bit shaky on my facts there uh, as to whether it was the Hutus or the Tutsis and the Tutsis, you know, who got the machetes out. And I'm a little bit shaky about the Balkans thing too. You know, like if you're a Serbian and I've got it round the wrong way a little bit, uh, just... Okay, take it, you know, I'm, I'm, you, you get the point I was trying to make, you know, if I get the actual details wrong, oh well, you, you'll you be offended. Uh, but this is a freewheeling sort of podcast, so I'm just doing my best. Uh, now, uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about is, it's, it is humans, isn't it, uh, sometimes. Okay, I'll leave it at that, yeah. That's enough on Lullabella, I think. I'll leave it there. I don't mind an episode finishing abruptly. Uh, But uh, I'll mention that some Ethiopians believe and I think many Ethiopians used to believe, but even to this day, I'm sure some Ethiopians have faith and believe that angels came down to help the workers to carve Lullabella, because it was not physically possible for human hands to do something so amazing. Now, kids, talking to my own kids here, uh, don't disrespect that ever in my opinion. Don't disrespect anything. Uh, Oh, look, you can disrespect Goering. He was off the wall, you know. The Nazi. I was listening to something about him the other day. Oh my god! Uh, now, you can disrespect some things, uh, but don't disrespect anything other than that. <laughs> now, um, yeah, don't disrespect that. I think uh, if people say that angels came down to help carve the church, because on one level they did. You know, God was there, helping those uh, people, workers, carve la labella. Because if they truly believed that God did, then he he was there. You could get into philosophy and... Oh, I almost mentioned Descartes the other, uh, earlier, didn't I? And I completely forgot about him. I got on to Orazio Fantasia, Horatio Fantasia, and forgot all about Descartes, Descartes. Uh, Yes, you could get on to Descartes and he would argue, perhaps, that all you can really know is what you're thinking. And that the external world might be an illusion. And the Indians say things like this too sometimes. So, you know, I wouldn't be too dismissive of what's true and what's not true and what's reality and what's not reality. Um, you just have to relax and let it all, just take it all for what it is. Um, so on one level, if someone had faith that God was there helping carving the church, then good. He was. And if the angels came down too, that's good too. And I say don't disrespect that because, you know, Alexander the Great, for example, he was inspired by Achilles, who was legendary, mythical, uh you know, uh you know, one of the in 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 the time of the gods uh, in the in Greek tradition. Uh but Alexander the Great, Achilles most certainly did inspire Alexander the Great to go further and to be greater than he would have been had Achilles never existed in his mind. Now this is a pretty important point, I think. Achilles most certainly did inspire Alexander the Great and yet Achilles probably didn't exist. How do you make sense of that logically? Well, I say, don't think too hard about it, you know? I say, ...that he did. Achilles inspired. You know, Alexander the Great was the next Achilles. And in the same way, the angels came down and, if you want them to have... ...helped build Lullabella. Now, I happen to choose to not subscribe to that line of thinking... ...with respect to Lalabella because... I think that diminishes the sacrifice of the humans that most likely carved Lullabella all by themselves. Um, if you say the angels came down there and helped, that means their sacrifice is less. And I choose to be feel inspired at the sheer effort and sacrifice of the workers. You know, I, I like to feel amazed about that. Yeah, you know, I think it was likely, uh, I don't, I, it doesn't seem like a slave, slaves being forced to do the carving sort of situation. It seems to be, have been an act of devotion. Look, there might have been slaves uh, brought in to help too. I know Ethiopia is really, historically, really keen on slavery. Uh, yeah, as I think about it, probably they they did bring heaps of slaves, you know, up from the south to do some of the heavy duty carving. I don't know. But look, there would have been devotion involved too. Um, now, um, so that's the way I choose to think about Lalabella. Uh, In the same way, you know, so that deep spiritual feeling that my goddaughter got when she went to Lalabella, that's the the sacrifice of the carving. Uh, And in the same way, you know, if I were to go to the pyramids of Giza in Egypt, you know, I might look at all of that and look in wonder at it, at the sheer effort that was put into that by the workers Uh, I I feel, you know, I've seen people say that the pyramids were something that the pharaohs were able to occupy a devout populace with in the downtimes between the periods of, you know, the periods when they could do all the crops, uh, keep them busy and keep them doing something interesting. Uh, in between. I've heard that it was done by slaves, you know, it's just all slaves again. Uh, With Egypt, I feel that the pyramids... I like that idea that, you know, if... um, I think the people of Egypt, the way the Nile floods and all that sort of stuff, were occupied for only certain periods of the year when agriculture was possible, and then in the off-season, There was nothing for them to do, and, you know, idle hands, that's when the devil comes to play, and people start getting restless and unruly and all that sort of stuff, and, you know, you get civil unrest. So maybe that there's some credibility in that idea. Uh, So there's that. Um, And in my normal sort of fashion of wandering in these tours of Ethiopia, wandering from thing to thing. I mentioned the Renaissance Dam before, which is... I'm finishing Lullabella now. I'll Consider Lullabella finished, okay? Uh, the Renaissance Dam, I did mention that before. Uh, and now I've just mentioned Egypt and the Nile. Okay, the Renaissance Dam is... You know high up on in the Nile you know up up the Nile, Egypt and Ethiopia have had some friction over this recently. Uh, all through the thousands of years of uh, all through history, Egypt has believed that the Nile is theirs. they God's joke is that he forgot to tell Egypt that Ethiopia has its hand on the tap, back at the source. This is hilarious. God does have a sense of humor. So, uh, Egypt um, is very upset that Ethiopia is building this Renaissance Dam. I think that might've come to a halt, I don't know. Uh, there's been some politics, you know. But I know that when the Renaissance Dam was ordered, I think Meles, the Prime Minister, you know, who's of from from the Tigrayan uh, side of the equation, uh, so all the Tigrayans I know think he's, you know, perfect. Um, Meles, uh, he ordered the Renaissance Dam built and... He, you know, fairly correctly argued that it's a, it's a hydro dam and that the Egyptians will still get their water because hydro dams, hydroelectricity dam, hydroelectric dams don't actually consume water, uh, they just hold it up and then use its power. Uh, use the power of the water flow in a controlled way to create electricity for the betterment of everybody, I'm sure, but especially of Ethiopia. And uh, and Melis correctly, I think, said, no, don't don't stress so much, Egyptians. You know, well, we will be, you will still get your water eventually. But Egypt, I think, is just thinking, yes, but you're in control of when the tap gets turned on and off and all that sort of thing, you know. And what about when the thing's filling up for a few years? You know, What are we doing then? Uh, and all that sort of thing. And then Malice, I, I heard an interview of him speaking to an Egyptian reporter who wasn't quite getting what Malice was getting at. But then I have some sympathy for the Egyptians as well because, yes, even though the Ethiopians are correct in saying that the water will come, the fact is, the Ethiopians are in control of the tap, you know, and Melis skipped lightly past that point. And there is that filling up issue, which Mellis didn't mention either in that uh, interview. But Mellis did say one nice thing, which I think is a bit of a message for the world. Take some inspiration from Ethiopia, world. Uh, Mellis wasn't one of those ones who said, everyone should love each other, uh, you know, and that that's the ideology that's sweeping the world at the moment. if we can all love each other, it'll all be all right uh Melis sort of said to the reporter, "Well, you know Egypt and Ethiopia we're never going to be friends, you know we're like in an arranged marriage, and we just don't like each other. look let's just agree on that, you know." That that happens in arranged marriages. Who arranged the marriage? God did because He put us both on a Nile. We have to share the Nile, so we're married. We're stuck together. You know, uh, there's no way we can get out of this marriage. There's no divorce mechanisms here. Uh, so we're stuck together, and the best thing we can do is make the best of it. What do you think? You know, uh, so win win. You know, can we just keep chatting like this, please, Egypt? Now, don't don't go crazy and start having starting wars and things let's just let's just admit that we're, we're stuck together and make the best of it you know i don't mind that as an idea uh, the tigrayan people that i know say that meles is just amazing, everything he says is just come is coming from the wisest and most intelligent perspective possible you know what I mean? but you know, I think I'm sure he <laughs> I'm sure he cracked a few eggs, making a few omelets on occasion. Uh, uh, but I do like that sort of thinking, you know, because sometimes people say, "Oh, if you know, there's two mortal enemies, you know, uh, historical enemies," and people say, "Look, why don't you just hug each other and love each other?" And I sort of think I like Meles's idea a bit more than that you know, let's agree we hate each other, but let's get pragmatic about this, you know, and let's find a way where we can coexist, stay hating each other if we want to, Um, you know, because if we do go this approach of let's love each other and hug each other and all be one world and, you know, we are the world and all that sort of stuff and, you know, pretend we love each other, um, and then we could end up like the hutus and the tutsis you know who were thrown together people were living next door everything looked harmonious you know or the people up in the balkans you know the serbians and the all those sorts of people the croats and all that sort of thing all right communities that are forced together you, look at that you walk down the street and all the hutus and the tutsis tutsis are living next door to each other and you know the kids are playing together and You know, some Hutu guy says to some Tutsu guy, Tutsi guy, uh, I'll take your kids to school today, all right, because I know you're busy. And he says, Yeah, thanks, mate. That's great. Yeah, all right. That's great. And then one day, after years and years of this, suddenly you realize that they never actually did love each other. And one day, all the Tutsis, pretty much all at once, get out the machetes and slaughter all the Hutus. I hope it wasn't around the other way around. I think that was the way it was. Yeah, I think it was the Tutsis on the Hutus, or not the Hutus on the Tutsis. And, you know, that guy I talked about before, whose kids were playing the Tutsi guy, whose, uh kids were playing with the Hutu kids he actually went next door and killed them all. Same thing sort of happened in the Balkans, you know. You had Serbians and you had Bosnian Serbs. You know, you had the two different, all the different types of people. And I think the Christians rose up and slaughtered all the Muslims, you know. And you get all this sort of thing. Uh, so maybe Meles had a point. This episode suddenly seems to be about Meles a little bit. And that maybe it's healthier to not force something to be true that isn't true. Then again, at Prince Harry's and, what's her name? Meghan Markle's wedding... There was a very exciting bishop brought in to do that wedding and he uh, he got on the pulpit and even I loved him. And he said, all you've got to do is love. Everybody love each other. Um, you know, and uh, that's all you need. Love is all you need, like John Lennon said. End of episode. Whatever. I was chatting to my Greek uncle-in-law about Orazio Fantasia. Orazio Fantasia. We go to the football every week, he and I, and my father-in-law as well, and my brother. Uh, Now, um, and I said, ah, Did you hear about that debate, you know? We're not allowed to call him Fantasia anymore. We have to call him Fantasia. Uh, Because that's the way the Italians say Fantasia. They say it as Fantasia. He said that comes from the Greek word Fantasia. (laughs) I like the Greeks. Everything comes from the Greeks. Give me a word. Any word and I show you how the root of that word is Greek, okay? How about arachnophobia? Arachno, that comes from the Greek word for spider, and phobia is a phobia, it mean fear. So fear of spider, there you go. Okay, Mr. Portocollis, how about the word kimono? Aha, uh-huh. kimono. Kimono, kimono, kimono. Ha! <laughs> of course! kimono is come from the greek word kimona is mean winter so what do you wear in the winter time to stay warm a robe you see a robe kimono there you go